JV Knowledge Podcast Network. On episode 56 of the InsureTech Geek Podcast, talking about cyber tech with Asaf Lifshitz from Sayada Labs. The InsureTech Geek Podcast, powered by JV Knowledge, is all about tech that's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. We'll be interviewing guests and doing deep dives into tech we see changing the industry. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech. So enjoy the ride and geek out. What a day, what a day. We got like a super multi-time zone show today. As we record this, it's Friday, April 23rd. Uh, Roberto there. Rob's over in San Antonio, Texas in his uh, his home office. I'm over in uh, Cali, going back to Cali, Cali, Cali. And Asaf Lifshitz over in Tel Aviv, Israel, man. So, I mean, we've got this like multi, multi-time zone, multinational show today. But we're going to geek out on Cybertech. Uh, Rob Galbraith, how's it going over there in San Antonio? It's going, it's going, James. We actually have uh, our local holiday today. Uh, the kids are off of school, so it's uh, Fiesta, Fiesta Week in San Antonio. Oh, it's uh, I love Fiesta. Uh, I, I hate to say, I hate to compare it to, yeah, I hate to compare it to Mardi Gras because um, it's it's definitely not as big as Mardi Gras, but yeah, it's kind of got a little bit of a similar vibe. I'm sure it'll be a bit toned down, but. Uh, yeah, we kind of, you know, had to cancel all of it last year. I was going to say, so not as toned down as to, last year's to be Fiesta. Back with our local holiday. <laughs> You're like, oh. No, no, you can't get any more toned down than last year this last time. Last year's non-Fiesta Fiesta. My favorite thing about Fiesta, and I know it's a stupid thing, is uh, the confetti-filled eggs cracking that over people's heads. It's one of my favorites. That's awesome. Well, happy Fiesta, Rob. And joining us from beautiful, lovely, sunny, beachy, Tel Aviv, Israel, Asaf Lifshitz. How's it going, Asaf? Uh, it's going well. Thanks for having me, James. <clears throat> and we're super happy, happy to have you on the show and geek out on cyber uh, insurance, cyber tech. He's the co-founder and CEO of Sayata Labs. That's S-A-Y-A-T-A, sayatalabs.com. Go check out his information. Before we get started with Asaf, let's just remind you that you can subscribe to the InsureTech Geek Podcast by texting geek out to 66866. Make sure you never miss an episode. Asaf, let's jump right in. We love talking about insurance. We love talking about insurance tech. But first, we got to start by talking about the people behind it. You're one of those people. You're from Israel, and you did your you did some some work in physics for your undergrad. You did a master of science in physics, so you're a pretty smart guy. Then you uh, you went and hung out with those wicked smart guys at Harvard for your MBA a few years ago, and uh, you've done a, some work in uh, the Ministry of Defense as a researcher. You've done work. Um, for the Boston Consulting Group for a few years. It's a great firm. And then for the last few years, you've been co-founder and CEO of Sayada Labs. So you, you have a really diverse, interesting background. Let, let's just, uh, I'm going to give you a random question, right? I mean, it's the same one I give to all my guests, but it's kind of random for most. If you grew up in Israel, like what did you dream of doing when you grew up? Wow, that's such a good question. I think the answer changed uh, probably as I um, as I grew up. I think I always had a passion for tech, I have to say, but maybe even more, more broadly to like how things work. Okay. And so in a way it started or like the first steps in it were uh, pulled me more towards the physics and uh, more technical parts of the world. 
uh, over time, I think I came to think of the question in a more broader sense. Uh, and the business world is another big component of how the world works. And so I, I spent more time in that as well. That's awesome. And, you know, Israel has a requirement to serve in the military, right? Yes. I'd say that right now, not everyone does it all the time, but um, more more often than not, definitely most of my peers have served uh, for a substantial period of time. The officially mandatory period is about three years, I think, for men now and two-ish for, for women. I ended up serving for a uh, substantially longer period than that um, because of the specific training program that I went to, um, where the mandatory part takes the entire length of the the entire duration of the program. And then you stay on in the, the Minister of Defense more broadly for, for an additional six. Wow. So it was a pretty lengthy period. What, 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 what was your favorite part about that service and what did you learn? What did you do? Uh, God, I have to say, I, I'm going to pick two things. I think one thing is that the people that you end up meeting, I think, are friends for life. Like, think about it. You're the, the military unit specifically that I went to, there's 40-ish grads a year. Our class was maybe even 30 uh, four. And you spend a significant amount of time with these people, a lot of waking hours. There's many waking hours in the day and you spend most of them together. And so you really bond with those folks. And I think that I, I view them as friends for life, really an underappreciated. Uh, some have become later my co-founders, to be honest. That's more the training piece. And then after the training piece is done, which is again, three years into the service or three and a half, uh, the work that you do, I mean, it felt very special. You feel like you're you really have significant impact on the world and in, in the world, and so I I really appreciated that. And what did you do for Boston? Like, what what led you to go work for Boston Consulting Group and then go uh, to the the little local uh, school there, Harvard, and get your MBA? What was yeah. what was the draw to Boston? You know, so that was it. Goes back to the um, understanding in my mind that much of what the how the world works isn't necessarily like physics is one lens to look at it, but business is is another one, and in in a way, a uh, very helpful one to understand. You know, take a look around the room and like what what you see in that room is to a large extent shaped by 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 business even more so than physics. So, I remember I had this I attended this talk by a graduate of our unit uh, who had a similar background, but then ended up with a similar life trajectory or professional trajectory. And he told me about, it was a different consulting firm, but it was what got me interested in the business world. And so how the type of problems and the type of questions that they ask and the type of project that he got to work on as a consultant. And I sort of realized, man, I have to, to get in on that. It's a very different environment, management consulting. Uh, it's uh, sort of high intensity and, um, High throughput, but it's one of the best schools, if you will, that I went to in life or from a professional perspective. Uh, and then the MBA was a continuation of that, of like immersing myself deeper into the business world. Again, it's, it gives you a very different angle of it, but it's um, uh, also very, I think, complementary experience. Awesome. So you, you get through BCG, your time at BCG and your, your MBA, and you decide to start a, a company. What was the original problem you saw? What was the premise or the goal when you started the business? You know, it's a, it's a good question. We, I remember we, we landed on insurance, but we're not the three of us founders, sort of. We were in touch throughout the years. We stayed close friends. But we, we had this idea that it would be cool if we could find a problem to work on together and collaborate on. It had to be the right problem. And I was having lunch with a buddy of mine from, from my MBA. 
Uh, and he told me about this world of cyber insurance, which I knew nothing about. Initially thinking, I don't even think that makes sense. Like, how can you insure against cyber attacks? That, that doesn't add up to me. Uh, ended up reading, like, literally read the Wikipedia article for insurance, and, like how, how that works. Uh, and like, what are the conditions under which it's an interesting academic problem, by the way, like, what can you insure generally? And there's all sorts of criteria that an insurance line should meet so that there would be even a, a market for it. And so we went from there. Um, and it started, I'd say, with, um, with like the, the concept of cyber insurance. We didn't know exactly what we're going to do in it, but we immersed ourselves in it and uh, over time ramped up on it. Now where we landed on is the big part of it is the efficiency of, of the way processes are done. There's a lot of manual labor that's, that's done uh, by brokers specifically. Um, it, it starts in cyber, but we actually noticed that this is the case in, in, in many other insurance lines. So we're in the process of expanding to those as well. Awesome. That's, that's great. I mean, uh, how has that, that mission statement evolved to what you do now? Yeah, so I'd say it's um, it started with us just not knowing a lot. Um, so here's what we really liked about insurance, okay? And coming from the world of cybersecurity, okay? And so we definitely, the founding team, um, um, myself, maybe the least out of the, the two other founders, out of the, the three of us, uh, but we had a good understanding of how cybersecurity works. And there are many problems in cybersecurity, which maybe folks on the insurance side don't necessarily understand. It's very hard, for example, to measure return on investment. Essentially what you're buying is, you know, it's not even a promise. You're paying some vendors some amount of money and they don't guarantee results, right? Uh, they can't guarantee results. You don't even have a good view if you're solving the right problem or if the problem or the solution that you chose for the problem, assuming even that's a meaningful one, is a good solution. And we think that insurance is like really what draw, drew us to that is that insurance fixes so many of those issues. For example, um, in a world where, where coverage like really covers you for 99% of, of losses, which isn't really the case, if there's like some reputational uh, losses, then that's harder to cover. And there's always like this headache of handling a cyber breach. But, but by and large, I think it does a good job of uh, elim eliminating the problem for, so it's a pretty good transaction when you think about it from the buyer perspective. I don't have to take a stand on whether or not what I'm buying solves a real problem and it, whether or not it solves it well. There's like a, a financial agreement that tells me what exactly what I'm going to be getting with my money. And so we like that as a structure for the industry um, over time as we, so that was the, maybe the initial um, entry point into that, like why this is interesting. And over time, as we spent more and more time with insurers and brokers and sort of what's on their mind and talk with three your day, like what is the process, like the step-by-step -step process and you know, what are your pain points, et cetera. We, we just learned about this, um, so much friction, so much friction um, and manual processes and tedious tasks that the brokers have to do. Good example would be that, you know, if they, even if they just want to quote, some insurers have put up portals where you enter the information, but even then you have to go into the multiple, you know, multiple portals just to get multiple quotes. And then what you do with those quotes is all, all, all sorts of, um, even if the portals are good, you know, what you really want to know is not what are my options with insurer XYZ, but like, what are my options? It's like you, a lot of times prefer to go to kayak.com and not to any individual airline website uh, to figure out your options. It's you're trying to solve a different problem. So um, it was these conversations that really uh, gave us a lot of conviction in the lack of efficiency and our ability to sort of help there. Very cool. Um, Rob, 
Awesome. It's great to have you on with us. And I want to dive a little bit more just into the cyber threat itself. Obviously, this has been um, a massive growth sector for the insurance industry over the past decade. It's um, kind of a, a growing line of insurance. We're used to do the traditional lines, your auto, your home, your you know GL, your BOP, et cetera. Um, but we heard a, a ton about cyber over the past decade. Yet cyber risk has been around for you know a long period of time, certainly you know, my 20, 30 years in the industry. Um, What's driving, you know, are there more attacks and what's driving this? Obviously, you've got some uh, some different actors out there potentially um, uh, that are, are you know, behind some of these attacks. And then maybe you can talk a little bit about how they can be uh, combated. And just I, I'm sure as the attacks get more sophisticated, um, you know, some of the responses are as well. So just kind of your thoughts about cyber as a risk in general. Yeah, I think I, I think that's. Um great place to start because I think it, you know, it drives a lot of the fundamentals of the risk drive a lot of the industry dynamics and sort of where we think this is going. First of all, it's hard to get concrete estimates uh, of exactly what the magnitude of the problem is and how fast it's growing because different people account for different things. I think however way you slice and dice the data though, like I, very, I mean, very few reports peg that number at below a trillion dollars um, already and growing at double digit rate per year. It dep- again depends on what you account for and what you don't, but this is a ma- massive problem, like massive, massive, massive. By the way, this is what got some of the venture capitalists interested. In- so venture capitalists probably know, you know, they they only want to solve big problems because those have like big big uh, returns. In the early days, it wasn't an obvious thing to everyone that cyber insurance will be a major issue and a major insurance line, but the magnitude of losses, I think, was, you know, it's a good way to think about what is the potential for an insurance line. Uh, so, you know, what, assuming a reasonable fraction of those losses ultimately will be covered, that should give you a sense for the size of the insurance line, because ultimately you have to collect the premiums enough to pay the lo- for the losses. So it's a, a gargantuan problem, hard to give a, a precise estimate, but estimated in, in the trillions and, and growing. Um, really, I think the most helpful mental model for the dynamics of it is thinking about the attackers as for-profit entities, uh, if I had to put it in a nutshell, right? That's the, the most helpful way to think about it. So there are organizations, they monetize, they have to allocate resources to get control of like some data or IT systems or whatever, like breach the, the defense walls of the organization, and they monetize it. And ideally, they want their investment like to more than recover their investment. Okay, and I, I'd say for some of them, it's even a question of prioritization. There's so many things that they can do, and so what is the best return on their on their time invested? Uh, and so there's this whole ecosystem that has evolved, where you have really you can think of it's almost corporations that trade with each other. So one would specialize in exfiltrating data, and the other one would specialize in all the various other steps that required for like monetization of that data. And increasingly, it seems that, that and, and then there's this cat and mouse game, right? So attack, attackers find new sophisticated ways to, to penetrate organizations and then defenders get more sophisticated and put further further um, uh, defenses. It's that dynamic that then makes cyber risk, I think, inherently difficult from, at least from the insurer, like not a solved problem because the, you know, the, the, the constraints keep changing and the dynamics of the, of the risk 
keep changing. So from an underwriting perspective, that has like a lot of implications. Yeah, no, I I, I think you're right in that the risk of a, a hurricane or earthquake or a water leak or getting into a car accident, right? These are things that are kind of ruled either by the law of large numbers or some type of natural processes, right? Physics, you know, we talked about before. Um, people have told me the cyber risk this afternoon is different than the cyber risk this morning and, and can be radically different, right? And it kind of varies like throughout the day, each and every day. And, um, you know, insurers that typically price on three to five years of historical data, if you're trying to look at, you know, getting into the cyber risk market, well, the cyber threats three to five years ago bear almost no relation to, you know, uh, the cyber threats today. Yes, maybe there's a, a little bit of signal in the noise there, but it's just really, I think, how quickly this risk evolves. So uh, would you agree with that? Is that kind of a unique challenge for cyber as it relates to insurance? Yeah, I mean, uh, for, for sure, I would, I would agree with that. It sounds like I know that other insurance lines, yeah, they also change in the nature of the risk. Uh, for, for example, I hear that auto insurance has definitely changed with the introduction of cell phones, unfortunately, right? So people just are more likely to check their phones. That creates an additional layer risk. The rate at which this changes, it's much slower uh, than the cyber market, which in its, in its nature is adversarial, right? Like the, the, uh, there's something that causes it to evolve quick, quickly more than maybe just a natural evolution of, uh, of the IT infrastructure, right? There, th- that is, by the way, an additional layer. So not only is it attackers and defenders, but the whole IT stack or the, 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 the sort of the infrastructure on which you operate, even that changes for really for technological reasons that have nothing to do with the bad actors. So yeah, I think it, it does change quickly. And there's been numerous insurers that have posted massive increases in their, in their uh, uh, number of claims and frequency of claims. Uh, rates have been going up generally in the market. Um, yeah, not an easy problem to solve. I, there are other markets where this happens every now and then. So I think uh, DNO and EPLI, so Employment Practices Liability Insurance and Directors and Officers around COVID also saw major changes. And so you know, this, yeah, it happens every now and then. Cyber, I think, is just inherently structured such that, or is driven by these these adversarial relationships, which which make it move um, pretty quickly. Cyber seems to be an area that's evolving on every front, and there's a boatload of news every day, and it's a, it's really hard for a lot of people to get their head around um, exactly how big the risk is, and in particular. It, this is probably the fastest moving gun battle cybersecurity in, in the world because of how quickly the attack and, and counterattack and uh, the offense and defense have to evolve and change the, the game. Do you have a dystopian or utopian view of the future when it comes to to cyber? You know, because, I mean, it's it's easy to get pretty dystopian and think that our entire lives are going to be public. Nothing's ever going to be secure you start thinking about quantum computers and their ability to crack very long bit length hashes and the ability for them to crack all these encryption protocols. And you think that, you know, the, the future, there's really nothing that's, that's going to be safe. So it's easy to get dystopian. What, what's, what's your perspective on the future of uh, cybersecurity in general? Wow. Okay. That's a, it's a lot to unpack. And I'd say that there are bigger experts on this topic than myself, probably, but I'll give it my best shot. I think there's really two. I've separated between privacy, okay, and general, like other more B2B think about, in, in my opinion, um, impact of cybersecurity on B2B transactions and like companies and how they operate, which is, by the way, more of the world 
that I live in, right? Like what, what we do in, in the B2B or commercial insurance space. I think that overall, I'm pretty optimistic on the commercial front. Look, it's going to be a risk. Maybe it goes up, maybe it goes down. But I think that there will be an insurance. Not every organization is going to get hacked with a massive event all the time. And so there will be an insurance market for it that by and large solves the majority of the problems. Uh, but, but probably the biggest one today is just ransomware. That's if we go back to the attacker's motivation. That has emerged as such a powerful way to monetize so quickly. It used to be a pain, uh, pain point for the attackers. Okay, I got in, I got um, access to this massive database of a big retailer. How do you how do you monetize that? Okay, that used to be like a, a an issue, and now all of a sudden it's such so easily monetizable. Okay, you just extort them for for ransom. Horrible experience, of course, for the for the buyer, but for the for the business, but for the attacker, it makes it that the return on the investment becomes so much more immediate. So, I think they, these these things are con- going to continue to happen. I, I'd be surprised if they didn't. Um, but overall, I think insurance is actually maybe ransomware is an excellent example. Insurance can make the problem of ransomware theoretically go away. Like once you're hit. Within a few hours, they, you know, you inform the insurance company, they make sure that the attack is legit. They wire, not wire, but uh, <laughs> blockchain the money uh, to the attackers and you get access back to your data, the event is over. And so will premiums go up? Possibly. That's the cost of doing business. I still, it's a small fraction of most organizations' revenues. Um, and that, but that's more on the commercial side. So yeah, may, maybe prices will go up. Um, I also think that there's reason to believe why they won't. Maybe I'll give one example. Increasingly, insurers are being more involved in the mitigation. And that goes back to the first part of the conversation, which we really liked about insurance and how it's tied to security. So insurance companies are, at the very least, well-positioned to be a good advisor to mitigating the risk, at the very least, okay? Because they actually get hit with the claims. And so, and they foot the bill. And so they are an advisor whose incentives are very aligned with yours and have the means to drive your decision so they can, and some of them do, give you better terms if you behave in a better way. Um, and they actually have access to data that says, Here, here's how we got, like, this is an important problem. This isn't. Contrast that with the way cybersecurity works today. Very far from that. Like, you, you have a lot of advisors and a lot of vendors offering those services, but do they really know what is an important problem? How would they? Okay, like how do they know what's an important problem from a probabilities and dollars and cents? I don't think that they do most of the time. Or that their solution that they're pitching you or that some other vendor is pitching you does a good job or a bad job of addressing it. It's very hard for them to tell. In short, and even if they did know, you know, it's always in their interest to advocate for their own solution or they have some other agenda, which isn't necessarily your own agenda. The insurers, I think, interestingly, are, you know, locked interest with you. And so I think it's a good structure to address cyber risk and to be able to identify the important problems, like what is actually driving losses and what are good ways to mitigate those losses. And so I think that's a counter, like while you have this attacker defender dynamic, I think the the more in, the insurance industry is um, influencing decision-making or is um, taking a more hands-on approach in the mitigation part, I think you're, you might even see a reduction overall in, in, in losses. So that's the more optimistic part. But the pessimistic part, I think, is look like there's you know the there's it con- continuously more and more information being collected per individual, which is then stored on so many different environments, 
in, in multiple forms. I think there's absolutely no way that we're, we'll, uh, maybe not absolutely no way. I, I think it's hard to envision a situation in which that is controlled well. Even if, you know, the, the need to give access to that, to that data, it, it, you know, it helps us live better lives, right? Like you want to be able to, like some of that information collection, it really, it really helps you. Like there's just no way around it. It makes your life better. You, your Google results get better. Your uh, show recommendations on Netflix get better. Your text prediction get better. Like everything just gets better when you, you let people collect information on you. And I, and I, and I think people are um, likely to continue to give access to that and just live with really, I think, diminished privacy. I mean, I don't like that outcome, but I, I, I definitely see that that is a trend. Yeah, the big trade-off between privacy and convenience. But uh, yeah. it does lead us to, to having these massive cyber liability issues. Uh, good carriers are providing a really good tool set to their clients. Mine does. Provides a whole, bit of, whole, whole set of uh, cybersecurity tools along with the policy. Uh, we're seeing some pretty advanced cyber uh, carriers get re- re- really um, go way beyond the normal um, loss control uh, <laughs> procedures that most uh, carriers would go into to uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if uh, the big cyber liability insurance carriers ended up acquiring the big cybersecurity companies and actually owning the space since they're going to own the risk. They want to make sure that they understand how protected their clients are. Uh, Rob, take us home. Yeah, so if I'm uh, curious, so uh, on your website, it kind of talks about uh, that you guys blend cybersecurity experts, leading insurance veterans, and seasoned data scientists to deliver a one-stop solution for replacing cyber risk. Um, we were talking off air before we started recording a little bit about the Israeli tech scene. Um, there's just some amazing startups that have uh, obviously come from in Israel. We were talking about uh, three unicorns already, uh, Lemonade, uh, Hippo, and, and Next Insurance. So maybe we can just talk a little bit about the, the, the tech scene and then what's the, the process of assembling uh, your team as part of building a startup? I actually think that our founding story is similar to many other startups' founding stories. Um, it's maybe like the most cliche that you hear in Israel is um, two or three people from the same military unit that sort of knew each other professionally pretty well and like hit it off personally as well. You know, once they leave the military service, they 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 start something entrepreneurial. It used to be much heavier on just pure cybersecurity. I think that was partly driven by so many of the Israeli startups that were founded were uh, cybersecurity companies still many, many, many still are. I think there's also a uh, expansion to other, to other industries as well. Uh, insurance has definitely been uh, a very successful one for sure. Yeah. It's on a per capita basis, if I'm not mistaken, or on an absolute basis, I think Israel is second in the world or, or something crazy like that. Okay. From a you know, venture capital hub. Uh, on an on a per capita basis, it's probably the biggest. It's it, at least from venture dollars that go to cybersecurity. I'm not sure if like venture dollars overall, but like venture dollars for cybersecurity for sure. Um, and so many of my personal friends have founded co- founded companies, funded companies. It's it's really a big big part of the culture here. I would say. Very cool. Yeah, Saf, and uh, I'm also curious. Uh... I wanted you to talk a little bit about the idea of a cyber cat event that's on the scale of a cyclone or earthquake and, and what that could look like. Yeah, sure. I mean, first I'll say I'm very happy. I'm not 
the one that has to make these types of decisions and how to prepare for a cyber catastrophe. Because I think it's so hard to give a good estimate, in my opinion. There, I mean, I, there are very smart people taking a you know uh, shot at, at this problem, for sure. The maybe I'll, I'll sort of for the listeners who don't understand uh, the question, uh, the nuances of it, I'll, I'll try to give a brief explanation. The idea is that yeah, there's like a ransomware event, but that usually is uncorrelated with other ransomware events if you're an insurer. So one, you know, policyholder one had an event doesn't mean the policyholder two would have an event, and so it's pretty well diverse, diversified in that in that respect. A catastrophe could happen or you can envision this catastrophe in cyber where something breaks across your portfolio or a significant part of your portfolio, and all of a sudden you need to cut big checks to many, many policyholders, and an insurance company could go out of business. And then you got to ask yourself a question. So in natural catastrophes, we have good records of how likely like, is a big earthquake to hit city X. We have much, much, much less available data on that question for a big cloud provider going out, okay? If it goes out with a, not due to a malicious cyber attack, maybe that's not included there. That would be included under a different policy, but it could be as a result of a cyber attack. We got a small taste of it a few years back uh, in the WannaCry attack, um, which leveraged a uh, vulnerability in Windows, uh, Windows computers. If, you know, a couple months after it was, the patch was released, many people still did not patch or didn't update their Windows systems. Um, and so they were just 100% vulnerable to an attack. Um, I think something to the tune of 200,000 computers were infected. It, you know, it seems like only by more luck than skill that um, that was someone found the kill switch, essentially, and the whole uh, attack died out like immediately and didn't further propagate. Like who knows how bad that could have been. Um, that is a type of risk that insurers fear. Uh, and I, and I, I definitely think that they should. It's also, in my opinion, a very, very difficult question to answer. Like, you want to know that you're prepared to withstand a, you know, one in a 100 years type of event. Okay, cloud computing has, <laughs> has been around for, call it, 10. Okay, like, how the hell do you know? Uh, what, what does a one in a 100 year event for cloud computing even look like? We definitely haven't, we haven't had one. So how do we know, we, you know, how do you take a stand on um, the likelihood of that? And just... Taking a uh, you know a reasonable list of all the potential like what could happen, there are a million pieces in software like a million. There's like all the way from the you know from the cloud computing level to like the operating system level to the browser level. There's so many a, a PDF reader could have vulnerabilities. There's so many components that could go have like a massive vulnerability as some way to to leverage and be tied to a specific cyber catastrophe. Uh, and then for each one of those, you have to take a stand on like is it you know, one in a hundred year event or one in 10 or one in two year uh, type of type of risk that, that, we're, that we're risking. And when it happens, like how bad does it get? That's also like unclear, uh, not just the likelihood of an event, but say that there's a, you know, how quickly will the organization say that there's something, you know, some problem or some attack on a cloud provider. Okay, how long does it take the organization to shift to the other cloud vendor? That has a massive impact on whatever business interrupter. Like these are, very, very difficult questions to answer because there's, I think, such limited data to, to even take a stand on, you know, to come up with an order of magnitude. So, yeah, difficult question for sure. More people should be working on it. 
Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I think you're right to focus on the cloud computing. Yeah, you know, the AWS, right? Uh, Azure, uh, Google Cloud, and, and we saw a recent attack against, you know, Microsoft and others. So, um, yeah, I'm sure it will happen. It's not a matter of oh, if, it's a matter of when. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like. Yeah. Well, great, yeah. great, great, great James. discussion on cyber. And Rob, great question. Honestly, I hadn't, we've covered, you know, cyber cat events, but I hadn't really thought about uh, some of those details. So great question and great discussion. Um, I'm I'm excited about what your company's doing and, and uh, what y'all are pioneering, uh, the, the, the integrated skill sets you're bringing together. And uh, Asaf, thank you uh, so much for uh, for coming in and having this discussion with us. We, uh, Thanks for having uh, me. Yeah, we do have we do have some news that uh, the uh, uh, that the man himself, Rob Galbraith, has brought to the table. Rob, what do you got this week? Yeah, so uh, kind of good timing with having us off uh, on and, and talking about uh, Tel Aviv and the Israeli tech scene. So I've got a couple of uh, Israeli founders in the news this week. So the big one, of course, Lemonade gears up for entry in the car insurance market. Uh, according to the press release, they assume, they uh, uh, said that current policyholders that are already with Lemonade spend about a billion dollars annually on car insurance. So you know, if they only cross sell and bundle, right, and insurance speak uh, to those, uh, I think that would be uh, amazing. I, I think we all knew this day was coming. Um, so they would allow uh, customers to bundle home, pet, and life insurance, which they all currently offer now uh, with car insurance by the end of the year. So obviously that was a, a big splash. We'll see how it goes. But uh, uh, I think we all kind of saw this uh, this one coming. And then inevitable, you know, quickly, uh, Carpenter Oco. In- inevi- inevitable. It, it was, I mean, yeah. they, they've gotten too big, got too many customers. They've, they've streamlined underwriting and claims handling to a point. You know, rolling out an additional line is not a, a non-event, as you know. You and I both worked on rolling out lines at carriers. It's a lot of work, but um, but th- this this had to happen, uh, in particular for bundles and then getting into umbrellas later and everything else. Yeah, a buddy of mine on Twitter was kind of talking about all the headaches that come across with uh, car insurance, right? Lots of premium, lots of reserves, very low margins in this space. So it will be interesting to see how they navigate. They may not have uh, as much success as they've had in some of those other lines, particularly with their start in in runners, but we'll see. Um, They have a bit of a track record now that these guys know how to figure it out. So I wouldn't bet against them. And then the second news item I've got, uh, so a former guest of ours, uh, Simon Simon Schwal from Oco Insurance, uh, which is based in Tel Aviv, uh, raised $1.2 million in seed capital. That's right. The crop insurer raised seed capital. (laughs) Uh, That's my dad joke of the week. Um, There we go. I love it. I love it. So they are a startup uh, which currently operates in Mali and Uganda. They use satellite data, mobile payments. They create automated insurance products. Um, and so with that, they're hoping to uh, increase their presence both in those markets and then expand uh, to offer in, in more uh, African markets, starting with Ivory Coast. There's an estimate there's about 33 million uh, farmers in Africa that could benefit from their solution. So um, congrats to Simon and his team at OCO. Uh, very thrilled to uh, see that. And again, feel free to go back to the InsureTech Geek podcast catalog uh, to listen to our conversation with Simon. 
Absolutely. Thank you, Robin. Always interesting news, and I welcome dad jokes on this show. I just want to mention that. I have absolutely no problem with dad jokes. Asaf, thank you for joining us from uh, Israel. I appreciate you um, being on the show and, uh, and talking about cyber today. Thanks for having me, guys. Pleasure. And Rob, thanks as always. Good to have you on the show. Always great to be here, James. Good conversation every yep. week. And thank you for listening to the InsureTech Geek Podcast, powered by Jamie Knowledge. JamieKnowledge.com. It's all about tech that's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. I've been your host, James Benham, jamesbenham.com, with co-host Rob Galbraith, endofinsurance.com. Big thanks to Jim Green- Greenley, our podcast producer, and Kara Dalton, our creative producer. And thank you for joining us. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech. So enjoy the ride and geek out. See you next week.